Fireside Chats, the podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we read two essays on the early Bolshevik education minister, Anatoly Lunacharsky, regarding his views on artistic freedom and his untranslated treatise on religion and socialism. Comrades, today we're going to learn about the Commissariat of Enlightenment, Anatoly Lunacharsky. 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 Soviet People's Commissar of Education. He was responsible for the Narkompros, the uh, Ministry of Education. He was a playwright, poet, Marxist uh, student of religion. Very interesting character. And so... I thought we could kind of uh, separate this episode into kind of two discussions. At first, kind of talking about, like, Lunacharsky's ideas on freedom of expression and the arts and his role in, you know, the early Soviet Republic regarding these debates. And then we can talk about his ideas of God-building, because that's, you know, his more controversial idea, I think. Mm. Mm. We didn't read anything by him directly, but we read a couple of articles about him broadly. Right. His main book is in an English translation. It was barely in Russian, apparently. And the impression that I got was that he seemed to understand pretty basically that there is something irreducibly subjective in the assessment of art. And that you can't subsume it to the immortal science of Marxist-Leninist <laughs> analysis and yes. evaluate it on that scale because... You know, uh, on some level, you know, it's just going to be your opinion. Right. Yeah, exactly. He was for a kind of a pluralism within the arts. And he even thought that artists who are even personally reactionary should basically be allowed to express themselves because he opposed this idea that art is just a reflection of the objective material forces because he saw the artist as having a role in creating those of material conditions basically that plugs right into the whole religious god building element and the critique of uh the mechanical outlook of the second international this article was published in 1970 and you know it was in the slavic review it's the legacy of lunacharsky and artistic freedom in the ussr by howard r holter and he's kind of writing about this to talk about how lunacharsky as a figure is used by different, you know, Soviet, I don't even want to call them all dissidents, just how the discourse on the whole art, like, you know, freedom of expression and how much freedom of speech should we have in our society and how Lunacharsky is like this kind of figure that everyone appeals to. And so, like, the more hardline MLs who want to, like, keep clamping down on freedom of speech, they kind of try to paint Lunacharsky as like, oh, you know, he was weird and he was a bogdan of this. And Lenin was against him, and even then, like, look, he says there has to be some level of censorship. Whereas, like, people who wanted more free speech, they use Lunacharsky as a way to be like, the true Bolshevik tradition is actually free speech and freedom of expression and artistic freedom. And Lunacharsky is uh, the representative of that, and you can't take that away from us. Right. Basically. The author seems to side with them. But yeah, if you actually just read the works of Lunacharsky and the history of him. Like, it's obvious that their view, you know, the the quote-unquote liberal view of Lunacharsky is more accurate. It's hard to see how one could construe him otherwise. And what I think is interesting is that anyone who disagrees with him so vociferously would, like, actually appeal to him in this way. That was the thing that I found most fascinating of all. Well, it's just because he had such an important role to play in the in the Russian Revolution. Like, I guess they didn't really, like, write him off in the same way he did Trotsky did. Because right, they still right. acknowledged that he played a really important role in building the Soviet education system, which was, like, something that they had pride in to the day they went down. And it was Lunacharsky who created the foundations of that. 
Right. But, I mean, Trotsky built the fucking Red Army, and they just buried him. So, yeah, I don't know. It's I guess he died before the purges. But the thing is, Trotsky, obviously, as important, if not more, but they ended up burying him. But they didn't bury, like, everyone to the same degree. Like, they didn't bury Lunacharsky, for example. And so people were able to use him as a talking point to fight for free speech in the Soviet Union, basically. That's what I thought was kind of interesting about this article. Remember back in, like, the 1920s when we had things like Pearl Cole and we could actually, like, have debates about things? Yeah. Remember when we didn't have, like, a weird secret police chief that raped children and just murdered people for no reason? Those were the days. And you knew where you were when... I actually have a question, like, how did this guy die? Natural causes. Did he... Did he... It was legitimately natural causes. Was it? He died in 1933, which oh, was, like... Okay. Like, some people had been repressed and exiled, but, like, the Great Purges hadn't begun yet, so he didn't, like, live long enough to really, like, get purged. But I'm sure that if he had lived long enough, he would have gotten purged. Oh, yeah. Like, when I saw that he died in the 30s, I was like, "Uh uh-oh. Early 30s is different. The Great Purges started as a response to Ryutin, who didn't even get purged at first until the late 30s. Like, it was really weird. Like, you would have thought that they would have, like, started purging people faster, but there was, like, a weird period, like, after collectivization initially was, like, super brutal, like, the Soviet judicial bureaucracy was basically, all right, let's step back and be a little less harsh and be, you know, more, like, careful and less arbitrary, but then, like, and so there's a brief period almost of reproachment. And then, like, the purges kick in, and that all just goes out the window. I mean, how much was that due to, like, bureaucratic backlog? Like, yeah, we we got, like, this list of so many people that we can't just kill them all at once, so we gotta take a little bit of a break. Well, they hadn't made the list yet as a thing at this point. Like, the, the conspiracy was, like, in the formation. One of the key, like, parts of that was, uh... This guy, Ryutin, who formed, like, an underground group of, like, people who wanted to, like, basically bring Bukharin back, but also, like, bring Trotsky back. It was, it was interesting. That guy sounds dope. And he got busted and imprisoned, basically, and then eventually executed in the later 30s. Of course. And then it just got, you know, more and more intense to the point where, like, you had the show trials, you had the popular aspect of the trials. It was just, you know, it was a mess. But Lunacharsky, the point is, is that Lunacharsky wasn't involved in this. He died before he could really get involved in this, I think. Damn. Like, he was on his way out of the USSR when mm. he died, actually. He got out while he could. Yeah, good timing, dude. He'll be, like, a diplomat in France. It's actually similar to, like, Colin Ty's fate. Because, like, she became a diplomat and got stationed in a different country. I, can't, I think it was, I can't remember which country. Norway. She was the first long-term woman ambassador yeah. in the modern world. And so she didn't actually live in the USSR during the purges. Right, and but so, she remained strangely loyal to Stalin, you know, as as ambassador. Yeah, but it's because, like, she didn't live in the USSR during the purges. Because, right. like, if she had, she probably would have yeah. gotten purged. She would have absolutely gotten purged. When I was reading this, I was thinking about how in, like, I don't know, the 50s or 60s, something like that, the CIA, like, funded Jackson Pollock and some other, like, goofy avant-gardists as a way of playing up, you know, what American artistic freedom could be and, like, showing it to the world. I mean, even some of the artists that they gave money to were actual, like, personally, they were communists of some sort, so it was perfect, you know? And how, like, if the Soviet Union went with Lunacharsky's vision of art instead of uh, socialist Norman Rockwell, then um, it would have been not vulnerable to this attack. Yeah, and it would just been a better society in general, I think. And I think what the material circumstance of this is basically, there was a kind of a renaissance of artistic freedom and Marxist intellectualism in the NEP period, before Stalin completely consolidated power and launched five-year plans. There was kind of a, a an actual ability to debate these issues. I think it was interesting how um, the author of the first article we read compared Lunacharsky to Bukharin. And they said, uh, the way Lunacharsky analyzed Soviet society during the 1920s was, on the whole, similar to the way Bukharin saw it when he promoted the principle of free anarchic competition 
at the 14th Party Congress in 1925. As a result, Lunacharsky's own basis for supporting a literary or artistic group was very broad. With the exception of admitted counter-revolutionaries or outright saboteurs, Lunacharsky encouraged artists of almost all political positions if he felt their motives were sincere, if they had recognized the talent they could muster. In addition, as Lunacharsky demonstrated through his personal activities, few of the desirable that a person with talent could come to support the Bolshevik regime by their own convictions, and that Soviet cultural policy should be directed towards this goal. And so I thought that was interesting, just in general, how both Lunatarsky and Bukharin kind of saw a necessity for kind of a competition of ideas in order to break the stasis of bureaucratic centralism that the Soviet Union was finding itself coming into. Well, I think this kind of permissiveness doesn't just apply to the arts. You know, even like the military kind of recognizes with like science that you kind of need to give it some free space to explore seemingly meaningless, useless research. And the idea that perhaps discoveries that are stumbled upon will have a sudden practicality even perhaps decades later, right? And so it's kind of the same thing with art. Like, it seems like the best stuff, even in capitalist society, tends to come when any paying entity basically allows a group of creative people to just do what they want to do. And that's how you end up getting the most interesting and best stuff, usually. He defended works of art that had redeeming aesthetic importance, even if they might be considered socially harmful. Because you see, like, in Stalinism, and you also see this in capitalism, like, this actually kind of made me think of the reaction to uh, Throbbing Gristle when they (laughs) first came out, actually. How it seemed like this socially harmful form of art that was expressing kind of the most dark and disturbing aspects of humanity in an ambiguous way. But it still had some kind of redeeming social or aesthetic importance. And I think Lunacharsky is kind of defending the right for something like that to exist. Like, we should allow art that basically questions our society because even if it may be harmful for the immediate building the worker state in some way, in the end, there might be something redeeming about it. And if we just kind of censor everything that seems kind of scary or dangerous to us, we risk ourselves of degenerating as a creative culture, basically. Unpopular opinion. I think the long run has demonstrated to us that like art nihilism That sort of transgression has so much utility in propping up capitalist relations that it's almost difficult for me to appreciate how in genuinely repressive circumstances that could be a real form of social critique. Mm. I don't know if I agree with that, because I think that transgressive art still has a role to play in critiquing our society. We have to be more creative. And I'm not an artist, so I don't really know like where to go with I this. Am. I just think that, you know, <laughs> BDSM like oriented like exhibitions, yeah, that's not really challenging capitalism anymore. But I still think that a proletarian movement that had a a culture around it, it could still produce art that was kind of challenging and subversive. Yeah, I mean, I'm open to the idea, but, like, actually existing art house communism, like, I don't know, Tukun accidentally setting a art gallery on fire, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I agree that it's awful. It sort of depends, because, like, the stuff that gets put up as subversive isn't always the most, like, subversive stuff, you know what I mean? There is kind of a certain level of, like, false opposition. Right. Like, look at, like, The Daily Show, right? Like, that's not, like, the most, like, trenchant, humorous critique you could offer of, like, our political class, I mean. Right, right, but it's it's also relatively soft and kind of easy in a way that, you know, aesthetic theorists would find, you know, contemptible. Black Mirror is the ultimate example to me, because I think, in a lot of ways, it borrows from you know, genuinely subversive science fiction and makes it into, like, you know, pretty masterful mini-narratives of, like, technological nightmare. I know a lot of people read a revolution. It makes it seem like there's no other possibility right. that the world, if, if that technology only offers us this kind of nightmare world. But I think that, right, right. you know, even if we can say these things are ideologically suspect, that the state shouldn't censor them, basically. Of course. And that's the environment we're talking about. And I think that's what Lunacharsky is getting at in this discussion. 
basically. It's really a discussion of freedom of speech, if you think about it. Right. That's actually how I approach it, because unlike in the sciences, I kind of don't think for the most part, a bunch of like nihilists in a literature department or whatever are going to produce anything of value. Like, and that's, <laughs> I mean, but not every creative like collective or every group of creative people are like nihilists in a literature department though. I mean, and I mean, I think it's easy to remember that like Lunacharsky, you know, he ran what was called Pearl cult, which was the proletarian cultural organization. Basically it was this whole like, group of artists and they tried to bring proles and, and train them to be artists and create like a genuine proletarian culture and like lenin kind of dismissed it as like a bunch of avant-garde nihilists you know playing with you know, weird ideas but right. i think that even if that was true something like that needs to exist in our culture because people have an urge to kind of be transgressive and edgy and if you take away the ability to do that I think that it damages the human soul, the risk using overly idealistic language. You know, it's interesting. You, you went with like the example of like the nihilist in a literature department. You know, the example I was thinking of when I was like talking about letting like a group of artists do whatever they want. I think it's time to blow this scene. Get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Uh, I literally have a poster of Cowboy Bebop <laughs> hanging on my wall. And, like, they basically made that show, like, their only real directive was it had to have, like, a couple of spaceships in it so that they could sell, like, model kits. But other than that, they were pretty much able to do whatever they wanted. And they made, like, one of the greatest TV shows of all time. You know what I'm saying? No, I get it. But it points to the fragmentation of the idea of an avant-garde. I wasn't talking about avant-garde. I was talking about art in general. Isn't kind of, like, the situationist critique? Is that, like, right. the avant-garde won't be a thing? anymore yeah they basically said yeah the avant-garde basically yeah, died like in around the 50s and i think they were right there's really nothing that's transgressive anymore i mean really transgressive like right. you can show as much sex and violence as you want but like no no one bats an eye at it anymore well and that's why like the only thing that's truly transgressive anymore is the critique of capitalism think about this though months ago like banksy sold a piece of art and then shredded it right after it was sold. And right. then several months later, we got the Yellow Vest Riots. Think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Chalkboard. I'm circling. I wouldn't say that, like, that's Lunacharsky's opinion. No, no. We're reading it in a vastly different context outside of the construction of a totalitarian regime. Yeah, we're reading it in a context of today. But I think, like, when you look at how alienated people became from the Soviet state, this made me kind of think of, like, Soviet punk and, like, the, you know, Igor Litov and, like, uh, however you say it, the band Civil Defense and how they just tried to, you know, make punk music that was, you know, kind of edgy and nihilistic, wasn't even necessarily anti-communist at first, and then as a response, they threw him in an insane asylum because it's like, no sane person would think such things and find such lifestyle appealing. And I just think of that and how, you know, maybe we do need a, a you know, a, a punk rock communism or something. <laughs> it's as cringy as that yeah. sounds. I'll get my safety pins. The, uh, I mean, I find it interesting that how deep the connection there was between, like, sort of, like, the use of psychology and that sort of thing as a means of censoring people and, like, the Soviet bureaucracy. I find right. that particularly interesting in terms of, like, how deep a connection there is, and, like, maybe there's a continuing connection between, like, sort of the modern left mm -hmm. in terms of their use of psychology and censoring yeah. people. This is what inspired Michel Foucault to write uh, Madness and Civilization. Well, let's look at, like, what the Soviet Union did, basically, was after Khrushchev basically let hundreds of thousands of people out of the gulags, you couldn't just throw dissidents in the gulag anymore. It just, the legal system was more regulated, the system of justice, or whatever you want to call it, had become less arbitrary. Wasn't obviously perfect, but at the same time, like, you couldn't just, you know, suppress people the way Stalin did. And so psychiatry and mental institutions became the main way that you repressed dissidents. You told people that, well... Like, how can you think these things about our wonderful workers' paradise? You just must be insane. And so, you know, they lock you up in mental institution. 
That's the kind of thing Lunacharsky was very scared of. To quote the article, in making his case for a limited use of censorship, Lunacharsky often expressed the fear that crudely applied censorship would drive artists away from Marxism or into opposition to it. He asserted that if any censorship was to be applied, only educated men of sensitive taste should push the blue pencils, and only then sparingly. Addressing himself to party officials, he said on one occasion, I think it would be very poor to solve our problem in literature with a Marxist censor. Such a phenomenon creates a suspicious... We will lose the artist's talent and it will become a force hostile to us. And that's what made me think of, like, kind of, like, the fate of, like, you know, the Soviet punks is how, basically, you know, these people wanted to make a kind of rebellious and anarchic kind of music, and the response of the state was to throw them away, and as a result, later on in, in Russian, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, a lot of those people became Nazbols. And so, mm. I think that when you have this arbitrary form of censorship, and you have people who are kind of trying to develop their ideas and may have confused ideas, and your first response is to throw them into a mental institution, it just turns the intelligentsia against you. It just turns creative thinkers into anti-communists. And there's a chilling effect. And, and therefore, that causes an intellectual stagnation. And you saw that in the Soviet Union with like the, just the level of intellectual stagnation that develops eventually. Yeah. And I guess... The, re- the reason I was poisoning the well on the avant-garde or transgressive art or whatever else is because I do think ultimately this is a issue of, you know, freedom of speech, or you might want to say freedom of communication. Um, I think it's interesting that, you know, Lunacharsky is pretty much well aware of, like, how this could go all wrong. Um, and there's a sort of, I don't know, I think Mike McNair tries to move on from the idea of freedom of speech towards freedom of communication. Yeah, because communication today is more than just speech. It's online, it's through media, and there's, there's and it's because of unequal class access to media means of production. You know, for example, someone like Swampside Chats doesn't get a fair hearing compared to someone like CNN or... Fox News or MSNBC. Well, you, know? you, dear listener, are giving us a fair hearing. Yeah. Yes. We we welcome. I mean, <laughs> when you think about it, CNN and all those like major like media conglomerate sort of like things are becoming more and more relevant as people like turn to the internet for their information. Like you know, the sort of like crackdown on fake news can be a response. To like the growing popularity of uh, alternative news sources that are coming from the internet, like Info Wars yeah. and that sort of thing. For and better, I was worse. telling people, I was telling people that, and they didn't believe me until they saw that the mainstream media here has not covered the yellow vest at all, and there has been complete media silence about the yellow vest. And so I think that pretty much. I mean, I want to get on a rant about the yellow vest, but I just think that shows how much that. This whole fake news narrative. Or it's, or it's to report that the yellow vests are being controlled by the Russians yeah, through bots yeah. or some asinine bullshit. Or it's like, see, like you do a gas tax and people won't have it. See, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> it, it's taken as a rejection of climate change. Yeah, and it's obviously more complex than that. I think we said that on an episode, so man, culpa. I, I still have some reservations because of, like, the demands that they put out were a little bit iffy on immigration, but overall, it's better than what I would expect out of, like, just sort of a spontaneous movement. Just like, say it. Just say French national character, Rosa. It's okay. You can say it. You can yeah, say fraud. Yeah, I expected something about the age of consent. Or whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we want Roman Polanski exonerated. So. <laughs> hey, I, I want to jump back to something Lexi was saying about the early Soviet art, though, because I think that, you know, from Malevich in painting to Shostakovich in classical music, it was really incredible for a reason, and that is because its context was not the kind of cultural moment wherein in capitalism, okay, the good guys lost in the 20th century, here we are. It was not radicals speculating about art. 
it was directly plugged right. into a social movement that was creating a new world. Um, and masses of people concentrated in the workers more than the peasantry, but masses of people were very interested in experimental art. And I, I want to give a Mayakovsky quote uh, here. Uh, very amazing uh, Soviet poet. Yeah, go Mayakovsky. Art must not be concentrated in dead shrines called museums. It must be spread everywhere, on the streets, in the trams, factories, workshops, and in the workers' homes. And I think that actually foreshadows the Situationists and John Berger and all of these people saying, take art off of its pedestals, get rid of that false mysticism around it and the religiosity around it. Yeah. I've been reading a biography of Lunacharsky, Sheila Fitzpatrick's uh, Commissary of Enlightenment, and it's basically a bio of Lunacharsky, but at the same time an institutional history of the Narkomperos, which was a ministry of education. And a lot of it is just kind of like mundane details about how they organize all the departments and stuff. What's really interesting is, like, Lenin's wife Krupskaya was really involved in it, and they had this whole idea of, like, educational Soviets where, like, kind of, like, local Soviets would, like, bring people into the process of administering education. And so, like, obviously you would still have, you know, teachers, but they would be, you know, under the democratic control of the students. And I haven't finished the book yet, so I haven't really seen how these institutions kind of congealed through the chaotic, you know, parts of the Russian Revolution. Because obviously things get more institutionalized as you go on where you have a very hierarchic education system. It's really interesting how, in practice, Krupskaya and Lunacharsky, and uh, I think the other guy was Podorovsky, they did a lot to really like, try to bring education into the hands of the people and bring these kind of ideas into reality. It wasn't just high-minded speculation. Like you said, Grant, there was a, you know, a real social movement behind this stuff, and, the, and these artists felt like they were creating the culture of like a new society. I want to disambiguate something for that history has, you know, pulled apart for us as well. The situationist and that quote that you said earlier, Grant, really does echo the situationist except uh, backwards. Anyway, um, the development of performance art, more or less the appropriation of this like uh, anti, you know, like static art ethos ha- had a role in distancing that situationist view of taking art out of the museum from a social movement. I thought the probably the best articulated critique, even if it, you know, has some gender trouble, is in Sorry to Bother You, the film, um, with the girlfriend character. Yes, yes, yes. There's a point being made there that art by itself, even radical performance art, can't do what a social movement can do. With recorded media, there is like a fetishization of art that's like hard to get over. Um, and when we were talking about the news media, I couldn't help but think of when in the 90s people started saying, well, that's the end of major label music. Everyone on, is just going to go through the internet and find, you know, all kinds of cool bands. But as it turned out, you know, over the decades, there was still room for a corporate soft drink in in between your, you know, locally sourced organic food. You know what I mean? Like, and um, there's these larger institutions hanging around and putting all kinds of art out there. Art that, you know, you would have never seen in popular media before. I, you know, recently watched the Eric Andre show for the first time (laughs) and was like kind of impressed at the level of transgression that you can do on television today. Because, you know, of a cultural environment informed by the internet. I mean, that's Adult Swim, though. Like, they were doing crazy shit back in the 90s. I mean... Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, how do you outdo that? How do you outdo Tim and Eric? Yeah. You know, what I mean, does Tim and Eric's protege look like? I mean, yeah. I, I feel like the only thing on Adult Swim that you can't do is basically racism. Just straightforward racism. Which is, like... Cancelled. Why Sam Hyde got kicked off of there. But we'll get something like a Feral House publishers that was in the 90s it was run by adam parfy who died recently and like they basically published everything like they published ted kaczynski like they published um weird occult fascist but the one thing they didn't touch was like holocaust denial and like race realism i don't I mean, that's probably a good thing i, I feel like if you don't to get the worst ideas out there 
that they're just gonna they're just gonna gain like some kind of traction because of how taboo they are. Right, they gain notoriety. It's it's got a appeal in itself. You can't censor things. It it shows the weakness of the revolution if we're engaging in mass censorship. It shows that it hasn't actually achieved social resonance enough to even be majoritarian, right. let alone it, like stable. And it's such a really unpopular just bring just sort of say that yeah, you know, censorship is bad, like deep platforming people is not necessarily the best way to deal with people. In terms of that kind of thing, it's not necessarily the best way to go about dealing with these sort of people. We need to send Jason Unruh to debate Richard Spencer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. God. There we go. He took down Sargon. Yeah. Now he's taking down Spencer. That's actually happening, unfortunately. No, unfortunately, uh, that's going to be some prime entertainment. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's just say I mean, right it's here. not our best representative at all. But Listen, neats everywhere are just filled with joy. Is it our worst, though? That's the question. Yeah. Yeah, it's our worst, actually. I mean, more or less. I don't know. But what, uh, I'm sorry, Donald. Were you about to say something good about Jason Unruh? Angela Nagel debated Richard Spencer, and honestly, I think she's probably worse. I mean, debated or made out with? <laughs> good, good question. <laughs> I don't know if I would put Nagel on that, like, sort of pedestal with Jason Unruh, famous writer of the political economic analysis of Fallout 3 and 4. <laughs> <laughs> nah, is honestly as bad as Unruh. Donald, I think Angela Nagel's gender politics are better than Jason Unruh's. I don't know. I haven't seen enough Jason Unruh, so I can't judge on that. I have. Yeah, she, she might be less of a social fascist or something. Yeah, Jason Unruh's a turf. They both probably have horrible gender politics. Right, but... One of them comes out and says it, and the other, you know, just smirks about it. No, Jason Honoré's been open. Who did you think was smirking? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I, exactly. Like I'm saying, both these people are pretty are pretty bad. Uh, I'm sorry. I opened this. Case. I was just curious if there was. I was trying to think. Is there anybody worse? Like, could we send somebody worse? That was the. <laughs> that was just my question. Who's yeah? It, who's it was. Worse? It was an Let's innocent think. question. Um, it is an innocent question. Probably someone in that group, Ultras vs. Tankies, yeah. like, just, like, randomly select someone from I, no, that group. No, I, I have so much more faith in Sortition. Actually, no, Sortition from Leftbook would produce someone probably more decent than the worst out Absolutely! Abe Cabrera? <laughs> okay, Abe Cabrera, that's that's a solid choice. Yeah, no, Abe Cabrera's, like, too interesting of contrarian to send over, like, <laughs> as much as we... No, he's not even a leftist, like... I he's know, just he's a... not even a leftist. Why would we send him in the first place? It's... It'd be funny. That's a, that's a good point. It'd be funny. It would be weird. <laughs> if we were gonna debate Richard Spencer, it'd be funny to put that guy out there. Yeah, this is our guy. Like, talk to him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's really no point. Like, Richard Spencer isn't even, like, the smartest of these fascists like yeah. let's debate dugan right. yeah. like for yeah. fuck's sake like like that's a debate i want to see i want to see zizek and dugan go yes. at it. why are we sending zizek battle of the funny accents that's what i want i don't want zizek versus peterson i don't want zizek versus ben shapiro i want zizek versus dugan that's gonna be the real fucking like meeting of minds. Well, that'd be a sweaty <laughs> wrestling match. Yeah, I feel like they look and sound similar enough. Yeah. Like it would, it would just get confusing. <laughs> yeah. How many points would they agree on? Like, just think about it. And th have the debate be like moderated by like bearded Mark Hamill. Yeah, just for like extra. Dugan, come on, Swamp Side. No debate between Ted Kaczynski and fucking Ben Shapiro. <laughs> <laughs> My bombs don't care about your feelings. <laughs> but anyway, all right. Yeah. All right. Ted K's been really popular in the alt-right recently. You should go on Rogan, then. Yeah. But anyway, I want to get back to Lunatarsky. Like, I think we can kind of now get onto the god-building aspect. Pivot to that god. Build me a god. Yes, build a god for communism. So, like, uh, there's this, this article by Roland Bohr. It's kind of like a, about this book, Religion and Socialism. But it's also about Lunacharsky and his idea of God-building and this kind of Christian communism. And it's a really interesting article. I really liked it. But he also talks about this idea of the warm stream of Marxism. Yeah, I really appreciated that. Which is, you know, kind of this utopian passion. And I just, I don't know, I thought this was a cool article. So I guess we can talk about um, the Pered. The, I don't know how you pronounce it in Russian, but it's V-P-E-R-E-D. And it was like a faction of the Bolsheviks 
who went in was uh his book Imperial Criticism. Oh yeah. And materialism or whatever. That book is basically a um attack on this group within the Bolsheviks. Alexander Bogdanovov was one of them. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of have this uh idea of God building and Lenin like attacks it as like, like idealistic. He, he, he basically sort of arbitrarily connects it to uh forget what it's called. So, uh, Tectology, yeah, tectology, and like Imperocrat-Makinos, am I saying that right? Makinos, yeah, philosophy, like he sort of just arbitrarily connects all these things together in sort of like a weird way, even though God-building doesn't really have much to do. Well, the thing about Bogdanov is like, you know, him and Lunacharsky were part of the same kind of current, and Bogdanov in his in his work that I've read, he really emphasizes kind of the role that humanity plays in transforming nature and how it's really what's at the core of materialism is this kind of metabolism between humanity and nature where the two define each other through each other's activity. And I can kind of see that being a thing, that kind of subjective element being an important thing in Lunacharsky's work as well. Because the way Roland, I think the way he puts it is, the key to Marxism was then a synthesis of science and irrepressible enthusiasm. Like, he really believes that you have to have kind of an ethical idea, basically. I feel like his stuff about, like, God-building would be useful for, like, um, bringing, like, the Muslim world into, like, Marxism. You know what I mean? Like, there's Abraham, Jesus, Muhammad, Marx, you know? But this is the thing, is that Lunacharsky rejected that idea, kind of. He didn't see God-building as like, oh, we, we gotta make some religion to get people right. to follow us. He actually saw it as, this is what real Marxism needs to do. He didn't seem to see it as an instrumental thing where you're going to use this to, like, hoodwink people into communism. And there's a great quote that kind of highlights this, where it said, quote, it is worth noting that Lunacharsky is far from seeing religion in a utilitarian manner mm, as yeah, useful for socialism, yeah, whether in terms of appealing to those with a religious bent or in terms of appropriating some peripheral elements of religion. Instead, he seeks the core of religion, its workings, contradictions, and possibilities. But I want to say to Jake's point that religious societies may find that collective species goals universalist aspect of communism appealing what what exactly is god building is is a question basically you know we're going to kill god we're going to kill religion we want to kill all irrational and supernatural beliefs but the thing is is that these kind of irrational supernatural beliefs that people have that they form like spiritual mythologies with are based in real collective strivings for utopia just in an alienated form and so what God building is is basically taking that that kind of striving for utopia that's irrationally expressed in religion and rationally expressing it through the real process of creating the actual kingdom of heaven on earth, so to speak. Yeah, this is Nietzsche and Marxism, more or less. You know, we have killed God. I thought it was more Farabakian almost. But well, I... it's the Nietzsche idea that life has no purpose, but we're going to give it purpose. And there's mm-hmm. there's kind of a collective humanity project I... of... Yeah, Lunacharsky references his influence by Nietzsche in the article. I mean, yeah, to a certain degree, but Nietzsche also had like a certain level of hostility towards Christianity in terms of it being slave morality. I, I don't think that and contradicts that char- that like, element though uh, of imbuing uh, life with meaning as, as a god-building exercise. Luna chart seems to like imbue the sort of quality of Christianity as something that's positive, a collective yearning of the Right, I mean, he's or, not a total Nietzschean, but he... Yeah, hold on, what does he say about uh, what Nietzsche would call a slave morality? He kind of calls it, um, the gospel of the poor, the slaves, artisans, and proletarians. It was perme- permeated by the spirit of collectivism. Yeah, he saw early uh, Christianity as very radical. I mean, he, he sees it as revolutionary, and and makes bold comparisons to communism. Yeah. And he also sees Christianity because... Like, he has like a weird class struggle theory of Christianity mm-hmm. where it becomes captured by the aristocracy and turned into a ideology of domination. Yeah, through um, 
a form of Christianity that became kind of like pop in the 90s called Gnostic Christianity. Yeah, he does not like the Gnostics at all. Look, I have no idea, but he has this crank theory that the Gnostics actually, you know, kind of like Bordiga says, you know, as the fascists lost, fascism won, you know what I mean? As the Gnostics lost, Gnosticism won, <laughs> like uh, that the Gnostics replaced the early revolutionary communist <laughs> democratic Christianity with aristocratic domination. Yeah, he calls it... um a chaos of primitive church. In an interesting way, this kind of parallels like a left interpretation of Nietzsche. This is like what Foucault does essentially with humanism, where you try to like demonstrate what, like where this thing that is an emancipatory doctrine can be turned against emancipation, more or less. And uh, he's providing an interesting account, even if it's, you know, bullshit. I have no idea. It's not bullshit exactly. There's definitely some proto-communist ideas in early Christian theology, but at the no, same no, that's time, that's not the part that I object to. That's not the part that sounds suspect. I want to add though that this interpretation it doesn't go against what Engels and Kotsky say about Christianity. Yeah, Engels specifically has a, a super hardcore atheist side and a big appreciation for Christianity, while Kotsky, I think, sort of takes a step even further in the right direction and being less hostile to religion, less radically atheist in a way we might find grating. (laughs) What I found interesting was the possible parallels that you can make between that sort of like Christianity, like just going from this populist, you know, revolutionary ideology to this sort of like bureaucratic state ideology, uh, Gnosticism, this sort of like heretical, like elitist ideology just like found esoteric knowledge that sort of thing like that winning out in the end in a weird sort of day i'm sorry about using the word dialectical here yeah um and drawing that sort of comparison to like communism itself the way in which communism as a movement started off as being genuinely you know, revolutionary, that sort of thing, you know, just a revolutionary ideology of the proletariat and working masses and, like, the peasantry and that sort of thing, and how it was slowly corrupted and turned into this stale state ideology that can be, like, just morphed into almost anything horrific. Like, just... Dangism. Dangism, Stalinism. <laughs> Yeah, it, it made me uncomfortable. It really made me uncomfortable just thinking about that. Seriously. But by the way, he sums up the history of the church is interesting. He says, chaotic primitive church into a strong, cunning, subtle instrument of oppression, is how he says it. Is that basically you have this early peasant, even proto-proletarian collectivist church, and it has a rough justice for the wealthy and the ruling class. And he says, the communist spirit of early popular Christianity is not in doubt. But was it revolutionary? Yes, of course. And its negations, the radical, merciless negation of the civilized world of the time, imposing in its place a completely new way of life, it was revolutionary. Any ideology that truly reflects the mood of the oppressed classes can only be revolutionary in its depth. That's Lunacharsky himself right there. I think Bohr makes the mistake here of kind of counterposing this idea to Kotsky and Engels. But I think that if you read their works on early Christianity, they also kind of say the same thing, basically. And they also have the same narrative about it becoming institutionalized into a system of oppression. And so you could maybe argue that, like, there's an early theory of Stalinism in Engels and Kotsky through their work on Christianity. What's pretty interesting is that he kind of takes on not only Engels, but Plekhanov, the founder of Russian Marxism, uh, Panikok, the council yeah. communist, and Joseph Dietzkin, who apparently fares better, but he too falls short. So he's doing like one of the first like early surveys of you know Marxist views on religion and doing like like an Aristotelian doxa where you sort of just like list out what's been argued and then you know you go on to say your point of view. I, this book sounds like it's worth learning Russian for. Or at least Yiddish. About Yitzkin, um, he actually does argue a similar point 
that um, Lunacharsky does, that Marxism is it's it's the inheritor of all revolutionary and radical aspects of religious traditions, and it's a great new religion. He kind of argues for a social democratic religion, actually. I'd be really interested to see how he talks about Dietzkin. Dietzkin wrote a um, thing called The Religion of Social Democracy, Six Sermons, and it's from 1870 to 1875, which is like when Marx and Engels were around. And so they were into this stuff. Like, they called Dietzkin the philosopher of our movement. Dietzkin says, Religion was until now a matter for the dispossessed. Now, however, the matter of the dispossessed is becoming religion. That is something which takes hold of the whole heart and soul of those who believe. The new faith, the faith of the proletariat, revolutionizes everything and transforms after the manner of science the old faiths. So it's this weird idea of kind of almost a religion of reason. I mean, I guess you can draw parallels to like a cult of reason under the Jacobins. And, you know. That wasn't gonna work out yes, well. Yes, I was like, waiting for someone to say. That. I don't. I don't know about God building. You probably could have like at least transferred some of the more ethical side, and like just the warmth and humanity that comes out of like the sort of religious feelings that people have into something positive. It's not necessarily as irrational as religion, and I think what sort of like replaces the patriarchal father figure in God with like. Real, a real social movement. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to figure out what exactly is meant by God building. It seems like he sees in a certain aspect of like I don't know, developing like subjectivity in a way that leads people towards pursuing some sort of like higher purpose for humanity. Exactly. The whole point of God-building is that we couldn't preordain what God-building would be because it is this transcendent species goal where we are deliberately constructing our own subjectivity and realizing, like, consciously choosing what our purpose is as a species in the world. And I think that's only something we can deliberate together. I mean, yeah, like, and the question is, like, does that, is it somehow necessary? Do we, do we have to be tricked through, like, this alienated form into, like, developing our consciousness this way, you know? I don't think he's saying to instrumentalize religious sentiment and, and trick anybody. He's saying that human beings are going to, in a sense, make themselves gods by by finally having freedom of choice um i don't think he actually says that i don't think it's about like necessarily building a sort of religion per se or like building up humanity as god i think actually in the text there's an explicit line about that i can't remember where it is in the text it's something along the lines of he says something one-off about humans making themselves gods, but it is more of a thought about their self-conscious creation, right? Yeah, it's humans taking control of their rational powers and utilizing them towards a, a common goal. And so basically, God is a alienation of the fact that we can't basically do this as a species, that we have all these ideas and, and, and myths that we create to express our alienation from being able to pursue our needs as a species. And so God-building is the actual process of building communism, in a way, and overcoming this need for God. And so Lunacharsky is basically saying that we can't just abolish religion because there's still this spiritual side of humanity that yearns for this common, greater good, and we have to kind of construct the common greater good through the process of building socialism i mean that's the only place that like religion i think comes from though i feel like he has kind of like an incomplete analysis here and i think it kind of like devolves into some crankery i got a question like also how much like is historically like accurate about his like characterization of uh of the development of like the christian religion i mean yeah i mean like i said he's using the second international historiography in that stuff he's right on the early stuff i have no idea about the gnostic shit he seems to like St. Paul, which is funny because Badu also likes St. Paul. And he reminds me a lot of St. Paul. There were some very Hegelian early Christians. And you know how else? He reminds me of Meritage. He reminds me of Che. And he reminds me of Sorel. 
Right. So just to double back on one thing, I think he considers socialism a religion that he wants to basically convert everyone to. Well, does he say Marx is like the last great prophet or something like that? Yeah. I think he's speaking pretty... I mean, I don't know. I really wish we had this original text because I want to know... There's so much about this that could be literal, that could be figurative, that it's it's not totally given to us in the reading we have here. I already talked about how the Communist Party should be like a church and we should be like missionaries. And the program is the Holy Spirit. I don't. I don't want to be Jehovah's Witnesses for communism. I don't think that that is what we should do. And if you really want to revive a religion, I don't even think that's what you should I, do. I don't even think what the author, you know, the guy we're at, I think would want that either, because he specifically says that people like, you know, Tolstoy and that sort of thing that like grab on to like the radical Christian tradition. Oh, yeah, he doesn't like those people yeah, at all. he doesn't like them I was just all. talking about the Communist Party in, like, as a metaphorical way, as kind of a church. He's not that metaphorical. To a certain degree, yeah. I mean, we have to, like, sort of grab on to the sense of community that people once had with each other, and that sort of thing, and really tap into that, you know, and just, just like... But that's where Lunacharsky might be useful for communists today. Eh. Right, but I think we need to be empowering people with our quote-unquote religion in a way that religion doesn't do, in a way that religion presently instrumentalizes even the people it benefits. Like the idea is that uh, we want to actually empower people, whereas religion just makes people dependent on a greater authority, whereas Lunacharsky wants a kind of doctrine that's about empowering people above any kind of supernatural authority. Right. It is hard to read this, you know, outside of the context of the way Stalinism forcibly replaced gods with Stalin, for instance. But but also with um it's hard it's hard to not read this in the shadow of Sorel, as Donald brought up earlier. To just comment on what your point is with Stalin, I think it's hard not to read in the context of the contemporary left and and think about you know, the failure of the Jehovah's Witness strategy of right, the sect. Right. And I don't think that's what Lunacharsky is, is advocating for, but it, it does point to, I think there are dangers in making parallels between communism and a religious order, whether that has some value or not. Yes, there's dangers, but without a revitalization of everyday life towards a, a common goal, it has to be said, there's a a popular political, like, I don't know, analytical, like, political ethics guy, Michael Sandel. He does a critique of the concept of a society that doesn't have, like, a sense of what is good. Like, you can't really do that. Like, that's not how societies work. You can't just have an abstract kind of There's justice. There's an ethical side to socialism. There's an ethical side to any society, and a society that just, you know, neutrally doesn't have ethics is lying. And that's the question that people like Merit Gay and Che and Sorrell are talking about. But I just want to say that I think, honestly, the reason that a lot of libertarians hate religion so much and have so much hatred of religion is not that religion is based on faith or even supernatural beliefs. So much is that religion gets people to believe in a greater common cause and act in a collective way. And I think that's why libertarians hate religion so much in the end, is that it's, it's in the end, it gets people to believe in, and invest in something more than just their immediate self-interest. There is a justified paranoia about collectivism and inroads on the individual. There is a justified paranoia, but there's also an incredible ideological like tendency towards extreme selfishness. And <laughs> so... It's, I think that I think that's we need to get rid of the paranoia about that stuff. In my not after the twentieth century. No, there's good reason for the paranoia. Uh, I don't know. I think we need to reclaim the twentieth century and 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 not you know say that oh the twentieth century's lesson is that the state enroaching uh. on the individual is the greatest danger. I think that's that's nonsense. State and capital. Uh, you know, it's one of the, it's a it seems pretty dangerous. I mean, more people died than ever. I don't. I disagree. I think that I agree with Badu on this that we need to kind of reclaim the 20th century because I, I think the 20th century just shows the disaster of of mass politics and <laughs> commanding people rather than people commanding themselves. Yeah. I, uh, I think that's. As... I think you really can't like comment on something like this without thinking about the Sorellian myth 
which is different than the kind of myth that Ernst Bloch is trying to get at or Lunacharsky is trying to get at. It is different. I think that sort of lesson is, yeah, it's overemphasized, actually. When you look at things like the Bengal famine kind of thing, it, it's it's done in the name of Western democracy. It's not done by any collectivist ideology. And even with the Nazis, they were influenced by like the westward expansion, that sort of settler genocide that was committed by a highly individualistic, mm-hmm. highly free-thinking society. So... I, I feel like the, the fear of totalitarianism is incredibly overhyped, and to see yeah. the 20th century as that kind of lesson, that simplistic narrative that is given so many times. and By so many reactionaries, like... <laughs> it's, it's reactionary to think that the 20th century turned out badly. <laughs> Yes, I think it is. Uh, that's I think wild that we to have me. to defend the 20th century. That's insane. That's that no, is No, it's not that insane. Is insane. The the Russian Revolution How didn't work. How can you think that it's insane like that, to and, defend and the, the German gains Revolution of the 20th century? Work. We had national liberation, women's rights. All of those things became perverted in ways that they did not historically necessarily have to be. Doesn't matter. We still have them today. We have civil rights. We had the global color line is radically challenged in huge ways like countries that were the colonial slaves of european people became actual actors in history like the 20th century was a massive leap in freedom for humanity i i don't disagree with like a lot of this stuff it's also just like it's an incredible century for democide it's like hard to imagine the amount of democide historically maybe that says something about you know I think what does it say, Donald? <laughs> I mean, I think maybe that says something about then what the cost of human progress is. Really, it's big democides. That we, we, we have a that we have a hard time coming to terms with. The cost of human progress is democide. This is exactly why people don't like communists. This is ridiculous. Yeah, that's why people are scared of us. I am not going to say that's the cost of freedom. That that's no, no, that's a bit much. But honestly, to just like solely dismiss the entirety of the 20th century as just like this continuing totalitarian mass. Just well, look what happened. It was the, the workers movement was at its peak. We had a revolution. It didn't work. Dystopia happened. Good job, 20th century. Did it happen? It wasn't dystopia. Like, this idea of dystopia is a reactionary mythology. Listen, we've been reading stuff from the 20th century on the whole podcast. No one is not, is disinterested in learning from the 20th century. I'm not accusing you of being disinterested. I'm saying we need to defend the legacy of the 20th century. I just century. think revolutions come in waves. They come in waves, you know. There's, there's reaction, and that leads to, like, a hardening that was honestly kind of like, it went too far, obviously, the kind of hardening that happened. It went too far, yeah. but there's going to be another way. Oh, yeah, it's going to be way worse this century. You were talking about the security chief of the Soviet Union who had, like, his rape cult right. and went around in his limousine and picked women off of the streets. Like, you can't defend this, like, the results it's of proposing this. a narrative that isn't just, oh, the, t- the 20th century was just a totalitarian hell. Even though, to a certain extent, that's no, true. No, I think the use of the word totalitarian is bad. Donald, do you think democide is the cost of progress? The genocides committed by untotalitarian, the quote-unquote free world, is just completely underrated, and it's not really talked about, even by supposed American left. Well, no, we should talk about the 20th century. We should talk about mass politics. Like, like we should the, talk about the settler genocide that was committed and how, like, continuing the, the white Congo, population. I mean, that's totally capitalist. British colonialism. Yeah, but when people talk about the totalitarian disaster of the 20th century, they're talking about communism and Stalinism for the most part. They're also talking about Nazism, I think. And yeah, Nazism and throwing them in together as, you know, a negative example of what goes wrong when you divert from liberal democracy. They underrate the extent in which their own societies are totalitarian, in which their societies are founded on the blood of white that. If we use the actual definition of the word totalitarian, liberalism is more totalitarian than any society right, that has I ever existed. It, when I call the 20th century bad, I'm including the triumph of, of like, American power. But how can you how can you also exclude the other aspects of the 20th century, the triumph of revolution? Now, I think this is a false debate. I mean, like the the, tri- the revolution did not triumph. Like there there were decolonial revolutions. That's good. 
but the bad guys ultimately won the war. Like, I don't think the world, this history is good guys versus bad guys. Like, this is already, like, that's already framing the debate. I think it just comes in waves. Like, the initial bourgeois revolutions that happened weren't initially, quote-unquote, successful. Mm-hmm. And there were a number of different things that necessarily led to the development of modern capitalism that weren't just direct revolutions. There were, like, things like the, uh, the, the steam engine and that sort of thing. That eventually it builds up. So even though those sort of revolutions that initially happened don't seem successful in the current moment, like the French Revolution was stomped out, right. that sort of thing, it's, it will be in the long term successful. And we can sort of look back with like somewhat critical eyes, but it, with also like acknowledging that, yeah, this was a part of the first wave of revolutions that led towards communism. I mean, 1917 was one of the greatest moments in human history, and Lenin is one of the most emancipatory political figures of all time. That doesn't change that the 20th century was a bloodbath, and I don't think we necessarily disagree there. What century wasn't a bloodbath? The future one where we have communism. I'm just saying, in terms of numbers, the 20th century's got numbers. The enormous bloodbath that leads to uh, leads to communism in the future, the, the nuclear war from Star Trek that happened like in 30 years i mean so you're saying that there's going to be a worse bloodbath in the 20th century in the future that's what's implied by star trek gene roddenberry's timeline actually you know what that seems pretty reasonable i mean i think that there is a point in there is that we need to be honest about the level of social catastrophe and obviously just horror that will happen if the world revolution happens even if it's successful in the end and that's kind of what I said earlier. That's what I was trying to, you know, say about you know the price of you know freedom. But you know, I think that's just like reducing the 20th century to like the bloodbath is 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 the wrong approach, in my opinion. If there's a world revolution, it's going. We're going to do things that we're going to ultimately regret. I think. I don't know about that. What I'm trying to get at, though, is that we close the 20th century on a bad note. I mean, it accumulates in the fall of the Soviet Union. Total sale of all kind of civil social institutions to the bourgeois political sphere. And also the fall of apartheid. I don't know. We read a text that said this, right? Uh, The problem was that they had lost what may be called the warmth of Marx's own thought and practice. This was a sensitive, enthusiastic, ethical Marx. The one who, alongside his deeply scientific practice, also provided an emotional appeal as a moral philosopher. The one who, according to Lunacharsky, said that poets need many caresses. Lunacharsky speaks openly of his enthusiastic conversion to Marxism and describes that system as a deeply emotional impulse of the soul. I think there's an obvious reason why Marxists would think about democides. We lose that warmth because that warmth is associated with the enthusiasm of mass violence. That's what we lose in the condemnation of totalitarianism. It's that communal drive towards justice that has been like commonly abused by dictators. It's been abused by Stalin, it's abused by Hitler. But we can't lose it entirely, otherwise we're just left in this complete void of like inaction and apathy towards a dying world. That's it for this week. Secret, secret, we got a secret. Something special's in the works. Say no more, say no more. Stay tuned. Find us on everything. Make it quantitatively known that you appreciate us on the said platforms. Even Instagram, we have an Instagram now. 
If you liked our Audible Theory Chat, consider leaving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice. If you love us so much, why don't you marry us? We've got a Patreon where you can get custom episodes, catch live streams, get episodes early, or just chat with us on Discord. Patreon.com slash SwampsideChats. Oh, and sorry for the delay. We've been having tech problems recently, and that's been making our pod harder to edit than normal. So, yeah, forgive our scheduling. Um, hang tight, though, because we've got some fire upcoming. A little anime camp, maybe? Keep your boots clean.